Tomorrow I will travel to Nashville for the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. I plan on strolling through saying, I bet my choir's better than your choir. <laughs> Do pray for my wisdom and the wisdom of many leaders as we gather. There are many things that we are uh, dealing with as a convention. And also it reminds me that my great faith is not in a convention or a denomination. It is in the Lord of the local church. And I believe with all my heart that one of the reasons God blesses the local church is the local church has the word of God and the opportunity to communi communicate it locally into the lives of us in this community. I want to do that to you and for you this morning. I want you to take your copy of God's word and I want you to find Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. As you're turning there, I, as often uh, is the case, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever gotten some bad information? Ever been misguided? Several years ago, I had the privilege of taking my very first trip to the Holy Land. In fact, if you're interested in going to Israel, I'm planning on taking a trip next year in March. There'll be more information about that this fall. And my desire was to do one annually. We did one two years ago. A pandemic canceled last year's trip. But I would love the opportunity over the next decade to take every one of you who can and has the physical ability to go to the Holy Lands. It is a powerful trip. But I was going on my very first trip. I had intended to go as a seminary student, but my first semester of seminary was the same semester of 9-11, September of 2001, and that changed the Middle East travel for some time. So it wasn't until several years ago that I had the privilege of going. Well, the trip lined up just after the Christmas break. And so, as is often the case for us, Laurel and I took our children to our home state of Alabama to see grandparents and family, and we spent Christmas there, and then I was to leave and go to Israel. So I got up the morning of my flight and drove to the uh, Atlanta International Airport, Hartsville-Jackson Airport. It is a massive airport. In fact, it encompasses 4,700 acres. That's how big this airport is. And they have a computer program which tells you that no matter what gate you get off at, you have to take the tram to the other end to get on the next plane. Every once in a while, I'll walk off a flight and go one gate over. I'm scared to death. I'm like, this thing's going to be cursed from the beginning. Well, I knew that the international airport there in Atlanta had both a national and international terminal. But I was not flying directly into Tel Aviv, where you fly into. I was flying to New York and from New York to Tel Aviv, and I was a bit confused. I parked at a central location and made my way into the main area of the airport where most of the terminals are. And the first person with a uniform on, a representative of the airport, I encountered. I said, ma'am, I have a question for you. I've got plenty of time, but do I need to go to the international terminal, even though I'm flying to New York and then to Israel, or do I fly to New York from this terminal? She said, oh, no problem. You will fly from this terminal. So I got my car situated. I got my bags out. I went into the airport. I made my way into through security and began looking for my gate, a gate I could not find. And then after several other episodes with people who were supposed to be trying to help me, I finally determined I'm in the wrong terminal. I had to go back out of security, no idea where my bag is, I have to go back out of security, 
and I had to catch a tram across to the international terminal. And the whole time I'm watching my clock. Well, at this point, and this was about five or six years ago, there was a difference between the time in which they shut the door on a plane for a national flight and an international flight. And I just missed it. I missed my flight. Now, we're not talking about a puddle jumper flight where you fly from Atlanta to GSP. You know, those flights are like weddings. It takes longer to get in than it does to actually do the ceremony. It, we're talking about it, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to Israel. And I was flying in to meet a bunch of folks in New York. And basically, I missed my flight. Fortunately, I found someone who was empathetic to my distress, and they booked me on the flight for the very next day. I had to fly into Tel Aviv by myself, and I paid a cab driver 250 bucks to drive me to the Sea of Galilee. I know Jesus walked, but I was not going to. <laughs> I got some bad information. If you live long enough, you're just going to have somebody guide you the wrong way. It's just part of it. And to be honest with you, there are going to be times where we may look back and we were not only the person being misguided, we have had times in our life where we've misguided someone else. Flights can be missed. Flights can be canceled. Most mistakes can be overcome. But what happens when you get misguided spiritually? The consequences can be terrible. I want to preach to you a message this morning called Lying Leaders. And the reason I want to preach to you this message is actually not only found in the book of Jeremiah, it's found in the book of Ephesians. Now you stay in Jeremiah, don't turn there. But every single month I teach our new members course here at Church at the Mill. And every month that I teach it, I use the same passage. If you've joined our church in the last decade, you've sat in a room where I have talked you through this passage. Rather briefly, it's not an in-depth study. Because Ephesians chapter 4 is really the chapter where we have the most full picture of how church is supposed to function. And one of the things that Paul says about the church is the gifts of God are given so that people can have truth. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, not our text this morning, this is what Paul says. And he, that's a reference to Jesus, gave the apostles, those are the people that wrote the New Testament, the prophets, those are the people that wrote the Old Testament, the evangelists, those are people with a gift to go out and share the gospel in the mission field, the Billy Grahams of our generations, and the shepherds and teachers, and in the original language, that's one word, shepherd, teacher. Those are the people called out to feed the church every week the word of God, to guide, to shepherd, to lead, to feed. And here's why. To equip the saints, that's every Christian, every Christian who has a relationship with Christ, which is by default a Christian, is purified by the blood of Jesus, is filled with the Holy Spirit, is re re referred to in the Bible as a saint. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of of Christ. So the job of the pastor teacher is to give you the tools needed to do ministry. Why though? Well, look at the very next phrase. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the, the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice the all there. You may be brand new to the faith. You may be new to Jesus. You may be coming back to Jesus, having been away from him for a long time. Can I tell you that God's goal for your life is not that you make 
uh, heaven by the skin of your teeth. God's goal is for every Christian to become a mature follower of Jesus. He says, to the measure of mature manhood, he's using the analogy of a boy becoming a man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, why? Why is maturity in Christ so important? Look at the very next phrase. So that we may no longer be children. Now, children aren't a bad thing in Scripture. He's using the, the metaphor of the difference between the maturity of a child and the maturity of an adult. Then he switches to the metaphor of a ship on the ocean. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the church was less than 100 years old. It was less than 100 years since Jesus had lived and died and rose again and ascended into heaven and given the church the Holy Spirit. But even in the first generation of Christians, Paul saw that people were given the wrong information all the time. And wrong information in the name of Christ can be deadly. And so Paul saw it as the local church's responsibility to put people in the best possible position for you to make sure you can discern what is spiritually true and based on God's word versus what is spiritually false and in opposition to God's word. And by the way, I, I, I don't want to run the risk of being too elementary, but I also don't want to miss stating the obvious. That, that's what I want. That's why we preach through books of the Bible. That's why we never, ever start a sermon without cracking open the Word, reading the Word, and explaining the Word. You know, the role of preaching is not for you to walk out impressed by what the pastor knows. The role of good preaching is what you know when he's done preaching. It is not for you to come and to be impressed by someone who may have had a theological education. Many of you have education in other fields. You are just as equipped and just as professional in what you do as perhaps I am in what mine. That's not the point. It's not to impress. It's when you hit those doors and you live your everyday normal life that you're able to discern the will of God based on the word of God and that you're not taken captive by terrible teaching that is often done in the name of Christ by wolves in sheep's clothing. And by the way, this is not new because hundreds of years before the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the book of Ephesians that was, of course, a letter in its inception. The prophet Jeremiah is prophesying in Judah and one of the things that breaks his heart the most is lying leaders a.k.a. false prophets. And, and if we can learn anything from this passage, we're not to trust them. Let me show you what I mean. In Jeremiah chapter 23, last week we only dealt with the first eight verses. We began in verse 9 this morning, and we'll go through the whole chapter. Concerning the prophets, and notice he doesn't call them lying prophets. Lying prophets never identify themselves as lying prophets, by the way. Concerning the prophets, the people that everybody seems to be listening to, Listen to Jeremiah. My heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine. 
because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Now, he's not talking about the actual sexual sin of adultery, though this was prominent among these false prophets. He's talking about cheating on their call and cheating on God. At the very root of adultery is not just the physical act, it is someone betraying the trust and the loyalty they have expressed to a spouse and choosing to follow their own sinful desires, betraying that covenant. Well, that's the best analogy that Jeremiah could come up with when he says, this is what these prophets have done. They are cheating on what should be their first love, the Lord God, by giving loyalty to all kinds of truth and false gods. He goes on to say, verse 10, For the land is full of adulterers because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Just a word there, listen. You can have a title and be recognized by a ministry and publish what looks to be Christian books and music and be ungodly. Don't assume that every person that portrays themselves as a Christian authority, Christian celebrity, Christian artist is. It does not mean we walk around cynical. It doesn't mean we're not willing and open to learn and grow from the gifts that God gives the church. It does mean that we need to develop wisdom and discernment to make sure we're listening to the right people who are listening to the right one true God. The Bible goes on to say in uh, verse 11, Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like a slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall, for I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment. And then he recounts what happened in Israel. Verse 13, in the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal, false god, and led my people, Israel, astray. Now that had already happened. But look at verse 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of the evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into the land. Now, we could just camp right there. But I want to make sure that you understand how to apply this. Nobody came into the room this morning prepared to say, you know, Pastor, I think you're wrong. I, I don't have a problem with false prophecy. N nobody comes to church desiring to follow a false prophet, to follow a false teacher, to follow someone who is misleading you. So it's important to unpack the Word of God so that we can determine how to discern that. And that's what I'd like to do with the rest of this chapter. If you're taking notes, let me give you four characteristics of lying leaders, of false prophets. And I'm going to give you modern day examples of some of this teaching so that you can lay it alongside God's word and make sure that you discern what is true. Characteristic number one, lying teachers pander to the wants of people over the will of God. 
One of the characteristics of false prophets in our day who come in the name of Jesus, who identify themselves as Christian preachers, teachers, authors, communicators, is that they are typically very man and woman focused in their message versus being very God focused in their message. This time that we have each week to open God's word is about God first and you and I second. And that's the way we learn from God's word. God, of course, is the supreme being that we ought to aspire to be more like and to be with. Notice what happens in verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. Look at verse the second phrase. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Now, he goes on to describe what this looked like, verse 17. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Now, remember the context here. Judah has been in a long-standing relationship with rebellion. God did not up and decide on one day after one failure, one false prophecy, that he was going to destroy Jerusalem. No, no, no. Years and years and years of rebellion and a lack of repentance and idolatry had polluted the land, and God had said, I've had enough. Now, remember, he's going to keep a remnant. He's going to keep his covenant, but I'm going to allow Jerusalem to be destroyed because of its wickedness. Now, this is happening. And we know this is happening because Jeremiah has been assigned by God to deliver the news. I told you at the very beginning of our journey that God often would communicate corporate judgment in the hopes of individual repentance. No matter what God had decided corporately for Israel, he's always looking for individual men and women who will own their sin, repent, and turn back to him. And we see glances of this and glimpses of this in the book of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah's assignment's a hard one. He's got to go to Judah and say, the Babylonians are coming. And when they come, don't rest your hope in God, because it is God who is bringing them for your own wickedness, wickedness like idolatry and child sacrifice and the complete and total neglect of morally loving your neighbor, of treating the poor justly, of caring for those who cannot care for themselves. Indictment after indictment after indictment in the first 22 chapters that we have studied in a very in-depth way. And so, if you're in that situation and you want to draw a crowd, just tell them it's not going to happen. Oh, no. We're all good. Jeremiah's over there harping again about the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. I don't see anybody in the city. The sun came up this morning. It's all good. And when you do nothing but appeal to a human's desire for comfort and pleasure, you make your ministry more about men and women than it is about the Lord God. Let me give you some modern-day examples of this. Fresh off of Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, you can find them today. One very prominent pastor who I believe says some things that are inaccurate posted this decide your win and order your life accordingly 
Notice your world. Order your life. Now again, if we were at a Marriott somewhere and you'd signed up for a motivational conference, fine. But a man of God should tell you it's not about your wins. What does God want for your life? And align your life accordingly. And by the way, when you get in his will, that's when you really win. It's called heaven. It gets even worse. One prominent teacher in talking about the woman who was healed from the issue of blood. You remember the woman who reached out and touched the garment of Jesus? Listen to the twisted teaching. She didn't want, she didn't wait for a touch from God. She went and touched God. I got no problem with that. If you need to feel God, you need to touch him. She was healed by a thought. No, sir. She was healed by a Savior. She was healed by a thought. So, two, you can overcome your issues with just a thought about God. Satan thinks about God. Today, every person in hell is thinking about God. It has not overcome their issue. Friend, it is not in you. Only a Savior can help you overcome your issue, not your own ability to think about Him. And that's what this prominent pastor said. Probably one of the worst examples a few years back was a prominent pastor and his wife. The wife stood on stage and said, Realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. That's what she said. We're doing it for ourselves. Do good for your own self. Do it because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God. Our five-year-old class will tell you that that's garbage. If this is not for God, I'm going to go sell real estate. Not that you're in sin if you're real estate agent especially if you tithe all that commission you're making right now but I could go make a lot of money doing a lot of different things if this is for our happiness and what I determine to be happy in my flesh which by the way never actually leads to joy or happiness you never meet the alcoholic that says I finally drank enough I'm happy you never meet the adultery that says, I finally had enough partners, I'm happy. You never meet the addict that says, I finally found enough needles laying by my side after I passed up to make me happy. No, no, no. Happiness ultimately is found in the center of God's will, and the center of God's will is about making your life about Him. And yet, this is what she said, because that's what makes God happy. And this is not new. What did Jeremiah say? He said, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God speaking through Jeremiah said, you give these people vain hope. You make it about what they desire versus God's will. Now listen, should you care about people's felt needs? Of course. Some of you came in here this morning, just needed someone to tell you that God loves you. Friend, he does. Some of you came in here this morning and you're hurting because of a broken human relationship and that human relationship has impacted your life and there is a real need in your life for guidance and security. Of course, we need love. We need patience. We need kindness. We need affirmation. But that assumes 
that my fallen human heart always knows what I need. Never before have any of my children ever walked up to me and said, Dad, I need to go to the dentist. They need to go get ice cream. They need a new toy. They need to play a certain sport. They need to go swimming. Just ask them. They need those things. Is it wrong for them to enjoy those things? Of course not. Those are part of being a child. In fact, I pretty much like all those things. I don't swim. I just sit in the shallow end and try to stay cool anymore. I look like Java the Hutt laying there. I don't actually move around. You can play Sharks and Minnows if you want to. I'm going to lay there. But we take them to the dentist anyway because we know the difference between a real need and a felt need. When you begin to unpack your life spiritually, you recognize that not all your felt needs are real needs. But as you discern the will of God in your life and you deal with the real needs of the human heart, then all of a sudden all those felt needs either become satisfied or they become things you don't need anymore. Characteristic number two, lying leaders find themselves prioritizing their public presence with people over their private presence with God. I'm weary of the term celebrity pastor. I don't have a problem with celebrities like you. I enjoy a, a good movie. I certainly enjoy people who can sing on a level that you and I could only dream of. There are always going to be celebrities who are phenomenal at putting a ball in a basketball basket or hitting a golf ball or throwing a football so I understand celebrity and I certainly love pastors mentor several right now and many are in my life I hope our church produces many pastors I love pastors they're a weird group to get around sometimes they all have fragile and overly large egos but other than that I love pastors but the idea of someone's pastorate becoming a point of popularity and celebrity tends to go against the entire pattern of the Bible. The prophets and the preachers of the Old Testament and the New Testament usually paid a great price for their call, did not gain great popularity because the message of God to a sinful world is unbelievably good through the door of brokenness and repentance first. Notice what God says to these prophets in verse 18. This grabbed my heart so much this week. For who among them, so God is speaking to these prophets, has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? God looked down on those false prophets and said, you hadn't been with me. Proximity to me equals passion for my will and my word. You've been more interested in being with your audience than you have with the God you say you represent. You're more interested in likes, tweets, and shares than you are brokenness, prayer and humility before a living God. The Bible says in verse 19, Behold, the storm of the Lord 
wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. Now look at verse 21. I did not send the prophets. He's talking about these false prophets. Yes, they ran. They wanted the position. I remember reading a book by a guy who has a lot of respect in certain circles, and yet he began to talk about his route into ministry, and he said God didn't call him, he volunteered. That caused me to shudder in my spirit. I mean, there's a lot of things you can volunteer for. Some of you have volunteered for Vacation Bible School. God's called you to serve, and you've volunteered for Vacation Bible School. Let me tell you the two greatest days of Vacation Bible School, the first one and the last one, amen? When I volunteer, I volunteer to step up for a unique assignment, for something that my church needs. But there's a difference between a volunteer and someone who is called in a lifelong ministry to preach and teach and inspire and encourage. And God said, I didn't send them, and they ran. And then he said something else. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. And here's how God knows that. But if they stood in my council, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. God said, if these men would have been with me, they would not have been false prophets. What's the inference? The inference is often lies told by leaders in the name of Jesus are the result of someone who cares more about their public platform than he or she does about truly representing the will of God. It broke my heart last year when I read one prominent pastor who was also a politician make this statement. I've been focused on women's health, women's choice, and reproductive justice, he said. That is consistent with my view as a Christian minister, and I will fight for it. He's pro-choice. He says that's because he's a Christian minister. I have no problem with caring deeply about the needs of women. I have no problem with recognizing that men and women and children, as far as Christians are concerned, should be given access to health care that helps them live their lives. My problem is a person pretending to be a man of God and forgetting something. What about the justice of the innocent baby in the womb? What about the word of God that says every life is prescient precious and he knits us together in the inward most place of our mother this is not a pastor this is not a minister and his pronounced disregard for the word of God shows that what he cared about most was his position pastorally and or politically third characteristic Oftentimes, lying leaders preach words of people over the word of God. Look at verse 23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, 
declares the Lord, God begins to reflect sarcastically. He said, I'm not a local deity, and I'm not a limited deity. I'm a God who's here and there, far away and near. I'm a God who hears and sees all things. And this is important, because what right would God have to do to indict these lying leaders had he not heard and seen what they had said and done? Look at verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name. In my name, every person I'm showing you this morning is someone who identifies as a Christian. In my name, I have dreamed a dream. I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. So the pattern was, these guys would get up and say, oh, I've had a vision. I've had a dream. The Lord laid something on my heart. The Lord spoke to me. And then they would just go off to profusely lie about the coming doom. Can God speak through dreams? Absolutely. Read your Bible. Does God lay things on our heart? Absolutely. I hope he lays things on your heart all the time. He lays things on my heart. He teaches me. I understand that still, small voice of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I liken it more to a leading, a nudge, a conviction than an audible voice. But when it comes to the truth we're going to base our life on, you better have something bigger, better, and bolder than your mind, my mind, your dream, my dream, your emotional seat, or my emotional seat. All of these are tools God can use to guide our heart from His Word. His Word. And this is so important for us to recognize that one of the greatest ways to hold up the lens of His Word to false teaching is to know and understand that the primary source, the supreme and superior source of Christian wisdom and guidance is from his word. And notice what he says about his word. Look at verse 28, second phrase. What has straw in common with wheat? You know the difference between straw and wheat, let me just use a little uh, simple analogy. If you're putting down some seed on some soil that needs to be stabilized, that's a landscaping term. We need to stabilize this soil. What they mean is, is that when grass grows on soil, it stops soil from running into the street and making your HOA mad because you've muddied up the places that their FedEx and UPS trucks come to bring them their Amazon Prime daily delivery. And so now industries and contractors will tell you that there are mud and dirt police that just ride around looking for unstabilized soil. It is a big deal. So the first thing you do when you disturb the soil is you either need to get sod on it or you need to seed it. Well, when you seed soil, you typically seed soil with two things. You seed it with seed and you seed it with fertilizer and then you put straw all over it. You don't buy hay you buy straw. What is straw? Straw is anything that anybody has cut and baled. It really doesn't matter what it is. It lies there on top of the soil and keeps the soil from washing. But if you want to grow prized livestock, you don't feed them straw. You feed them hay. 
especially horse people. They love their hay. And here's why. Hay from a hay farmer is not just straw, it is fertilized. It is a certain variety. It has some nutritional value. Do you know what straw and wheat can do to a horse's stomach? Fill it up. But only wheat can feed a horse. Straw can fill, wheat can feed. A lot of churches today filled with straw, but not feeding their people any wheat. Straw fills, but it does not feed. And so God even accused them of saying, you're filling people's minds with words. You're giving them vain hope. There's a lot going on. Just because you've written 17 books doesn't mean any of your books are worth reading. It doesn't make any difference what publishing companies have said. And you can pay third-party companies to make you a number one New York Times bestseller. Just ask someone who specializes in the marketing of content. If you hire enough people with enough resources, you can create the barrage that you are something significant. But I tell you this, a hundred years from now, the preachers we will listen to will be the ones who open the Word of God. And gave people wheat, not straw. And this is why God says in this passage in verse 29, It's not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Therefore, behold, I'm against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Just watch your social media feeds. All of the celebrities that are a mile wide and an inch deep, they just share the same information over and over and over and over again. How many likes would you get if you just posted 75 sermons out of Jeremiah? You know why we're doing that? Because you need wheat, not straw. You need something that can build your life bigger and better than any individual can. I am not qualified to tell you how to live your life. I think every pastor should have wisdom and discernment. I think every small group leader ought to have a certain level of spiritual maturity. But if you start depending on other human beings for the guidance of your life and not the word of God, you may or may not succumb to false teaching, but you are setting yourself up to be extraordinarily vulnerable to it. And notice what happens in this passage. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 30. Therefore, behold, I'm against the prophets who declares my word, who, excuse me, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Let, let me show you what one modern communicator said last year in a series he did. He said these words. If you were raised on a version of Christianity that relied on the Bible as the foundation of faith, I, I hope you can say that about your children, a version that was eventually dismantled by academia or the realities of life, maybe it's time for you to change your mind about Jesus. If the flags are going up, they should. Look what else he says about this. Maybe it's time for you to consider the version of Christianity that relies on the event of the resurrection of Jesus as its foundation. If you gave up your faith because of something about or in the Bible, maybe you gave up unnecessarily. Very prominent, Pastor. You own some of these books. This is extremely dangerous. 
He's trying to separate the truth of the word of God from the event of the resurrection, which, by the way, I would say is given to us through the truth of the word of God. Do you know what Paul said? Paul said these words to young Timothy, all scripture, even Jeremiah, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture. And then that's why he tells Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, which by the way, that's the resurrected one. And by his appealing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And what do you do? You reprove, you rebuke, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So you do it over and over again. The word of God and the God of the word are inseparable in our relationship with him. It just matters. Finally, last characteristic, we're done. Last characteristic, this is important. Lying leaders promote rebellion in people over repentance before God. Look at verse 15, verse 22 and verse 32. I'm going to backtrack very quickly, but look at verse 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food. He's going to treat them the way they treated him. Look at the last phrase. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Your words have weight when you identify as a person proclaiming the words of God. You can either push people toward rebellion or repentance. Look at verse 22. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. A man came up to me recently and said, Pastor, I don't know the number, but I know over the years there have been several times where I have repented of something after I left church attendance. That may be one of the greatest words of encouragement I've ever received. The Christian life is not just about repenting from sin once and being saved. It's about daily allowing the Lord to purge us, not for fear of wrath, but because we love him and we want to live lives that honor him. And then, of course, verse 32. Behold, I'm against those who prophesy, who tell them, who led my people astray by their lies. I did not send them or charge them. Last phrase, verse 32. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. One of the telltale signs of a false preacher teacher is that his ministry profits himself and not his people. But the telltale sign of an authentic prophet is that he or she in their teaching and encouragement profits those to whom they share. Any of you heard about the Eaton local movement? I learned a new term this week, a locavore. I didn't know that term. It's a real term. So I consider myself a carnivore. Actually, I'm an omnivore like you. We eat plants, vegetables, and, and meat. Some of you may be vegetarians. But, but actually, locavore is a term that's kind of new, and it's someone who always tries to only eat what is locally grown and sourced. It's that whole farm-to-table movement. And I know Laurel and I have enjoyed finding some restaurants that serve local cuisine. It's really good. I, I enjoy that. Now, the Lord would have to move me to a unique place if I only could eat locally. It would have to be like a lobster farm next to an Angus farm, next to a pig farm, next to a fried cheese sticks farm. But, 
but if there's a place like that, then I would, I would eat locally, you know, as long as there's an ice cream tree nearby. And so, but I thought about that just as a quick word of application for you. You say, Pastor, I believe you, I agree with you on this. How do I discern? The Bible says that the word of God is the nourishment to our soul. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus, of course, was called the Logos, the word. So, so in thinking about that, here's what you need to do with your life. Number one, eat locally. Doesn't mean we reject Christian teaching from other sources, but make sure you're instructed primarily through a local church from a Bible-believing, biblically-qualified pastor who preaches from a text each and every week. Eat locally. Eat fresh and organic, which means don't eat once a month. Make sure you're constantly getting the warm bread of God's Word served into your life. Even when you travel this summer, stay in tune online and continue to feed on God's Word. And also, make sure that whatever you feed on, whether it be from your pastor or from someone else, is Bible-saturated. Not just Bible-referenced, Bible-saturated. Third, got to feed yourself. You need to eat often. Your own time with the Lord, walking through books of the Bible, studying God's Word, praying and reading Scripture will build within you a knowledge of the Scripture so that you can spot counterfeit. And finally, everybody who gets into nutrition knows, read the label. When someone hands you a great book or says, hey, listen to this album, or hey, you need to go to this conference, receive that, but check the leader out. Are they accountable? Are they connected to a local church? Are they biblically qualified? Have they trained themselves, and are they someone who honors the Lord in their personal life? This is the great problem with distance learning in Christianity. This is why some of you who are online today need to come back home and need to be with us or find a local church in your community. Because how can you know if a man's leading his family or loving his wife? How can you know if a man and woman leading a small group are living the faith that they teach about if you cannot see them, if you cannot watch them, if you cannot to some degree be in their presence? And so when you do these things, you do them because the Bible says to test the spirits. That's what John said in the book of 1 John. He says, I want you brothers, don't believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. For false prophets have gone out into the world. You say, is this a Jesus thing? You know what Jesus said to us? He said these words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And you know what he said on Judgment Day about these false prophets? He said this. He says a little bit later, And many mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So on Judgment Day, there will be many false prophets who will say, We grew massive ministries. We wrote many books. We did a lot in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. I certainly don't want you to ever find yourself falling prey to lying leaders. So apply this word to your life. Let's pray together.